You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Well, usually. I mean, I'm still Jesse David Fox, but I'm actually the subject of the interview this episode. There have been a number of requests for such a thing, to my surprise, and also we thought it would be a fun way to tell you about the future of the show, which is bright. Not to spoil too much of the conversation, but the podcast has a return date, February 25th, which you might be thinking is soon, which it is, and, as you might realize, it's a Tuesday. The show is moving from Monday to Tuesdays, out of respect to Garfield. That's the only reason I am serious. No, I'm not. Or am I? I'm not. But to be actually serious here, the other big change is when the show comes back, it is going to be weekly. Which means when we start up again, it's just going to keep on going. Until the end of time or the death of comedy. Whichever comes first. It's all exciting. We're not throwing a party because I don't like parties, but we are hosting a live show at Brooklyn's Union Hall on April 2nd with three of my absolute favorite up-and-coming comedians, Joe Firestone, Pat Regan, and Z-Way, the last of which you might remember from our New York Late Night Writers Panel episode. Speaking of, this episode's interviewer also appeared on said panel. Josh Gondelman is a fantastic stand-up comedian, author of the recent collection of essays Nice Try, and a co-executive producer at Jesus and Marrow not to mention my friend and a future Good One podcast guest. He does a good job with, in my opinion, a very difficult subject. With that, I toss it to Josh. See you soon, or you'll hear me soon. Hello, this is the Good One podcast, a podcast about jokes. I'm Josh Gondelman, writer and comedian, and I'm here with Jesse David Fox, writer at Vulture and the host of Good One, a podcast about jokes, the show we are currently on. Hi, Jesse. Hello, Josh. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm you, like truly squirming and I'm going to relax. You really are squirming. We're going to have a very nice chat. Oh, we are having a very nice chat. Like until <laughs> I was like, okay, time, let's, shall we record the podcast? Mm-hmm. We are, it was easy breezy. And then you immediately tensed up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like you, like I was a, a, a police officer showing you the key evidence <laughs> yeah. that I had planted. Yeah. <laughs> so Which is like, an I, interview idea that I had asked you to do. Yes. 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 You did ask me it's to It's like do I this. planted the evidence for you. Like I planted mm-hmm. evidence on myself. Yeah. This is the real memento we thing here. <laughs> uh, people have been waiting for this new season of Good One. The, the streets have been a clamoring. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess it's coming back now. Yes. <laughs> so it's back now. That, that uh, obliterates the question of when is it coming back. So it will come back. I will say this is a 
prelude to the official release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, be, this is like solo. Yeah, this is like solo. This is a, a good one. Good one, a podcast about jokes, colon, a, a Star Wars story. <laughs> a Jesse David Fox story. Yeah. Um, so, uh, But it'll come back officially on February 25th. February 25th. And um, what can people expect from <laughs> the know. new season? I know that's like such a, uh, a garbage question, but there are things to anticipate. Yes. So the big thing is it's not a season. We are, it's a forever. We're going to weekly, um, which means the season model that we're on, which we were doing like 12 or 13, it was kind of arbitrary. We're just going to start and then keep on going forever. Great. Uh, which is terrifying because we've never done that before, but I think it'll be doable partly because we're going to try to think of ways to do different types of episodes, um, episodes where it's more conversational and less interviewee. And the, the thing that we're going to try is figure out ways to have people be able to talk about um, other comedians, which is have people on. We'll talk about a dead, a joke of a dead comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Pryor, Mitch Hedberg were people we mentioned. Um, I always want to do a Robin Harris interview uh, episode because I'm just sort of like really interested to him, Bernie Mac. Um, and, and so that will be sort of like the big stylistic change. I'm trying to think if there's be more things. I mean, ultimately the show is the show. We're now as part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, which they have more studios to work out of. Um, the rooms are bigger that we record out of. So I don't know. That's how that, what people want to know about the difference. Yeah. There's a clock that I can yeah. look at when I interview people Very instead nice. of having to look at my phone, which has been really nice. So that far. is really nice. But, you know, it'll be the show. I Great. Did. From the beginning of season one to present, you were saying by the by the end of the last season, you said, I, I really like how the show works. What changed over that time? And uh, how did it change? I mean, when I started it, I was like, I want it to be short. I want it to be not what Mark Maron would do, which is like, by the 40-minute mark, we really settle in, and then we're just people or whatever, <laughs> which is like what he did, because it's like, it meant his show's about real conversation. Yes. I was like, this is not about real conversation. This is about interviews and like, specific. And yeah. then And then I realized I had more things to ask people mm-hmm. that I had a skill as an interviewer to create arcs of an interview that you need to sort of like build people to and allow people to get comfortable in the sort of first half to like tackle bigger ideas mm-hmm. um, that if you, that I'm always amazed people are willing to talk about, but I think it, it helps that by the time we get to those moments, which is usually the second half of the interview, they're like, they're on kind of on the same page and you can't do that otherwise. Um, and so I got way better. And then, then I kind of figured that out about, halfway through into doing the show, which was, okay, so the basic is sort of the first half is what you did or and how you did it, and then the, the second half is why you did it. And then I kind of got a little bit, not bored, but I was just sort of like, what, what else to it? And then um, the last season changed, oddly enough, when I interviewed your bosses, Jesus and Mero, mm-hmm. because they are so fun that I remembered this podcast is fun. They're the funnest people. While still being able to answer questions, yeah. they also talk so fast. They do. My parents, <laughs> Which is a huge thing for me. My parents watch the show. Uh, I write for Jesus and Marilyn yeah. Showtime, and my parents watch the show because I work there. I don't think they would have come across it yeah. otherwise. And uh, after like 50% of the first season, last season, they said something like, 
you know, I, I think we're, we're getting it better. I think maybe they're talking slower. And I was like, I don't think they are. No. I think they go at that speed. I think you just learned, like, what it means when they say, like, dead ass. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to spend the next four seconds being like, I don't know what that Bronx slang is. Yeah. And so they're so fast and so able to answer the questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm always, every time I do this interview, I'm always so nervous. I'm not going to get to all my questions. Mm-hmm. But... So they were so fast, so they were getting through everything, and they were having so much fun. It was so undeniable, and it was a real game changer. It was like, this show is fun. I've already done all the work, which is too much work. People complain that I work with it. I don't have to do much work. It's too late. I do so much work. And I was like, I already did the work. I wrote the questions down. All I now have to do is enjoy the person that yes. I'm booking because I enjoy. And that was the breakthrough that I was like, this podcast is fun. The people are listening to it partly like listening that I'm enjoying this person and every episode from that point on has that instance of like I love the reason I'm booking all these people is that I love these people and why not experience that because I've already sort of done the work mm-hmm. and that is why by so that was some like probably by June or or May I was like I got it now this is what the show is oh that's great and the, so the missing element was like you remembering to engage and enjoy in the yeah. moment. Literally cool. just like listen. Yeah. Not because like I think usually in interviews you're supposed to listen because then like you can respond to what they're saying. But mm-hmm. you know, I prepare enough that I, I'm less surprised what people are saying. But I'm listening to enjoy literally be with a person in the moment mm-hmm. and hear them be funny and laugh at it. Or if it's like a comedian like Nate Gatsi who it's like your voice is funny. You talk in a funny way. Mm-hmm. Listen to it. It's you're right. It's just me and you. That's yeah. like so intimate to hear a person that is so funny. And that I was like, well, that's the show. It's like, it's it's in- intensive research that is borderline insane and unnecessary. And it's like trying to think as deeply about these people. And but like the show is us using this as a way to sort of express how much I sort of appreciate the, what these people are doing. Going back for a second, when you said it's kind of the first half is building up to being able to ask the bigger questions of the second half, right, and kind of gain that interview trust, what were some of the ones that you felt maybe a little, were there any that you felt a little nervous going into, like, oh, when we get to these big questions, I don't know how they'll react, what they'll think? This is the nice thing about comedians, which is I am asking some of these people incredibly personal questions, not in the way that a lot of people think personal, but, like, I thought about these people a lot. Mm -hmm. To me, it'd be very weird if a person you've met 20 minutes ago thought about you that deeply mm-hmm. and sort of made connections about your work and who you are as a person. And and so I'm nervous that I'm going to present this thing and either one, they'll be like, no, nah, I don't see it, which happens sometimes. But morally, I'm mostly nervous. Like, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> like, how dare you th- not, not even be wrong? It's just sort of like if someone did that to me. I'd be like, I'd be so nerd. Like, I don't even right. know what I'd be. You'd feel exposed. Like in middle school, you starred in a yeah, production exactly. of Grease and you're just like, get the fuck out of and, my life. Yeah. But what's amazing about comedians is they're, they, they love talking. So they're good at talking about themselves. I always say it's a podcast about artists. It's just comedians are better talkers than photographers are. But also- Take that, photographers. Yeah. I mean, I love photographers. So they're just like, that's not what their medium is. They're not talkers. But there's a certain narcissism about doing comedy that you have to believe what you're doing is right. And that level of narcissism that so many of the comedians that I've interviewed, at, you know, I'd say 90% are like, yeah, someone should be taking me this seriously. It is a thing that out in a different context might be annoying or whatever. And I'm like, that I love that I put all this work and none of them are like, 
how dare you take this? Like, and that's yeah. partly booking. I'm booking people who believe their work should be taken seriously, or and but I'm fortunate enough, that was the biggest gamble of the show, which is like, I don't know, can I do this? And comedians will agree to do it. Were there people that you were like especially blown away by how the depth at which they yeah. bought into the premise and considered? Yeah, I mean the it's um, I mean the Danny McBride thing. I I always say was probably the most enjoyable episode to do because I compare it to like I imagine what it's like to be like an expert tennis player and then for the first time play someone else's at that level where and for both of us because Danny I think is a genius. I think he's really thinking about comedy at the level that I, at that next level who's really understanding and thinking deeply about it and also has never really been treated that way partly because he's southern and and so people just assume he's the guy. And the the characters are often dumb. Yes. That's the thing, too. So they assume he's a dumb guy or he's like, an, at best, he's instinctual, right? And I'm like, I know he's brilliant. Let me treat him brilliant. And like, and I ask him these complicated questions and he's like, ready. And he's another one who talked quickly because he's like, you can feel, at least to me when I was there and I think when people talk about it, it's like, you can feel how excited he is to be talking about this stuff yeah. this seriously. I'd be like, in some ways, it's more novelistic. And he's like, that's so, like, exactly. I've been reading these novels. I wasn't, I was like, this is, it, it was like exactly like we've been waiting to talk to each other. And that was the one where I was so excited to put it out to be like, this is a guy who I, who I know, especially people in comedy, think is at that level and to be able to help audiences who might not see that like this is this is the the bar of like the people who really are the geniuses of what they're doing that's so exciting the other um oh the one i was maybe i don't know nervous about but the one i was most hopeful was when i interviewed nikki glazer about roast jokes yes and i love roast jokes so much it's a thing that i really believe in i think what the best roast jokes can do is feel like You've created this whole world in two sentences. It's like you it's the most amount of ideas and perspective in the shortest amount of time, ideally. Um, and I always believe this what Rose Stroke should be. And I always thought Nikki was good at it. And I had no idea you have no idea really if there's a depth to it. And every single one, it was like one, her process for those jokes are insane. Yeah. And then every joke, she it was exactly what I dreamed, which was like distilling so much into that it's like okay i think this i think these like 20 minutes of things about this one guy how can i now say that in two sentences and that was the one that i was like again i was i was i was a bit nervous because i was nervous there just wasn't gonna be that much there there like there are there are joke writers who are like i thought i just did it right and i didn't know if that was gonna be the case with these things because with roast people often just focus on like the thing you say because it is so extraordinary but she had so much to say. It's like an episode I keep on thinking about because I'm like, that's exactly what the show is. These are the smallest amount of things that have the most thing to say about. That's so exciting. Yeah. Um, is there any path that you, not to sell anyone specific, yeah. is there any path that you like specifically are like, ooh, I'd love to talk more about this that you find comedians in general are like, eh, a little resistant to? The reality of comedians of a certain level to acknowledge that they don't like their audience. Oh, interesting. You think they will they won't do that. Yeah, because they don't want to sell out their Of course. Audience. That there's once you get to a certain level, and I I've been trying to figure this out of what exactly the level is, where now your fans include people you don't like, who you never imagined would be one of your fans, but you're so big and you and you're just 
un, un, beyond your control. You are sort of a force of nature that you can't expect. You can do good work, but you just never know what your audience is going to be. And surprise, your audience includes douchebags or whatever. And how do you react to that? How do you work on material when you know your audience is going to be including people whose laugh you don't want? Mm-hmm. And as I, the show goes forward, I'm really interested in the audiences, and I've been asking comedians more and more about it because they, every comedian has opinion about audiences um, and how sort of cynically or non-cynically they think about it. And and so I to kind of inch towards the question of like, what essentially only Anthony Jeselnik really does, which it goes like, I'm not my fans. A lot of them suck. I'm trying to like, or that I mean, was that interview was incredible. His answers were so candid and interesting yeah. that I was like, I need to recontextualize how I think about his the intellectual project he yeah. considers his comedy to yeah. be. Him saying that he wanted to do such a good job in his format of comedy and his genre of comedy that no one could ever do it after him is like, on one hand, it is like so bombastic. (laughs) And on another hand, I kind of think he's done it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that as like a real compliment. Like when you see someone do the thing that he does at at a lower level, which basically everyone who attempts it is, yeah. you're like, oh, you're not Jesselnik. And there are some people that I could, not to make this too much about me, there are some people that I could watch endless versions of, yeah. and there are some people where you only need the one. Yeah, especially if they if they cracked it, right? They're, they're good at the regular job of it, which is yeah. running this style of joke. And they're also at the next level, which is like what Jesselnik, I think Jesselnik in his previous specials would be like, I'm the best at this. Mm-hmm. But what he did as he goes on is goes like, if anyone else does this, you'd be like, you're a worse Jesselnik. You should do something else. Like he does make it seem like he everything is he's found everything there. And also you're not gonna be able to find something he hasn't found because he's sort of already found it. Yeah. And there there's sort of other examples of people that are sort of the pinnacle of a thing, but other people are doing it and you can kind of see where there's sort of more room for it. Yeah. Right. For I mean, sure. like a million people do Bill Burr, and I think Bill Burr is the best Bill Burr out there. Mm-hmm. But he's not exhausting the ability to do Bill Burr. I think th- there's different opinions about the v- validity of doing a Bill Burr impression, but like ultimately you can still do it and there but like anyone's doing like a short joke where the twist is like essentially you're a murderer or whatever, mm-hmm. you're like so it like literally it's like it'd be crazy. It'd yeah. be like it, it's um, it's almost like if Mitch Hedberg was still alive, then and then no one else could have done Mitch Hedberg, but sort of he left the void of a lot mm-hmm. of people then being able to do it. But it, it's that's always like my favorite people, which is sort of like they are singular things, yeah, and they get to sort of like create the archetypes of like what is the pinnacle of it. Is there anyone that you think that you've seen their progress since you've interviewed them and been like, oh, I I need to talk to them now? Yeah, I mean, I think John's example, Nikki Glaser again. Um, Oh, who's a person? Um, there's tons. I feel like I need it. If I just look at a list of everyone I've had on. Um, and what do you think about Nikki that, like, what is the thing? Um, and not don't, like, blow it if you're like, I'm saving this for you. Oh, no, day. I mean, it's mainly that I think sh- the care and thought that she put in the roast jokes was not as as apparent in her regular stand-up as it was um, in her the roast jokes and i think and i think it's just sort of like can you say more about in what way because her jokes have always i found to be very precise in yes. terms of their construction yeah i think there's just sort of a depth to the ideas in the last special that were 
the same person I interviewed that, and it's partly just literally when I interviewed her, it was between these things, right? So it's like she did one hour and she then did four years of being better comedian or, you know, a more evolved comedian in that time period she was doing these roasts. And I think as these things go, she sort of like, I think, evolved to, she was an incredibly gifted joke writer, but I think it happens with a lot of comedians, which is at a certain point, they get so good that it gets easy and they have a few options, which is either they lean into it being easy and they crush all the time and it's boring to a person like me, but it's like very useful for like a club booker who's like, I'll get blah, blah, blah and he'll crush or she'll crush and it's great. Or they can get deeper or they can get more thoughtful in different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be personal um, or more experimental. And I think that was a thing that the Nikki I interviewed was that person. It just sort of like there were less jokes in her regular set that I could point to that was that person. And she was working on like but when I was interviewing her, she was working on this hour. So she was that person. It just literally I couldn't you point to the jokes. Yeah, right? yeah. And yeah, that last that last hour I've always really enjoyed her comedy, but that last hour and then the the shorter special she yeah. did with Netflix were just like she I think she really um added so much extra depth without yeah. sacrificing any power. Yeah. Which is like, you know, sometimes you find people who are like, This is too easy for me. I guess I'll just suck at it for a while <laughs> yeah. as a challenge. And she did not. No. She was like, I'm gonna talk about more complicated issues, more challenging issues without sacrificing yeah. like how hard the jokes hit. And um so that's a person I'm just like I'm immediately like I want to talk to them again because it's it's so um, apparent that I was like oh this is something else already and we didn't talk about really her 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 stuff in that way I mean like I interviewed Gary Goldman for two and a half hours and his his big breakthrough hour came out and like we were able to touch on it but I hadn't necessarily seen it I just sort of knew what it was about and I was I watched that and I was like I already know the questions I was gonna ask, like I'd ask him about mm-hmm. it. We've talked about like specific depth and answers and stuff like what as in general has like surprised you the most about doing the show? Like what have you learned about yourself and comedy and comedians that you thought you had a handle on or like curious to find out about? And now you're like, oh, my eyes are open to this. Mm, um, I mean, I think the biggest thing, which is there are types of comedy that. I'd never particularly liked or or, not, or didn't laugh at, let's say, because I, I wasn't necessarily like, I dislike it. It's bad. I was just sort of like, this is my thing. And um, and especially before I was doing the podcast, I was ostensibly a comedy critic in so much as I was reviewing things or I would do best specials of the year. And though I tried my best, ultimately the, my bias would come through and I had a, I spent some time working on the bias. But doing the podcast... I would book people who I'd say existed on the outside of that bias. And in that, I'm like, this isn't my thing. Um, I'm debating if I want to give specific examples. I mean, I will. I have I, ideas. Yeah. No, I will. So it's like, so like, like Whitney Cummings preparing to interview her. I'm like, and this happens with a lot of people. This is sort of the example. I'm like, what I say, what I do when I prepare is essentially like, by preparing, I fall in love with the guest. And the goal of the show is to convey to the audience what I love about them. And Whitney was an example of I didn't totally know what it was. I knew that people loved it. I knew she was like the pinnacle of a type of comedy. And I listened to her being interviewed. I, I, I only listened to her, her work in the context of her work. And I was like, I, it, I mean, it was a light bulb. I'm like, I now understand 
whatever the style of comedy is that she's doing um, in a way that I sort of didn't before. And I have a much more a greater empathy for of like what she's pushing back against and what sh- the type of conversation she's trying to have through her way. I also think her last special confronted that a little bit where she's she has this part where I think about constantly because I thought it was so interesting where she criticizes her friend for being obsessed with how men and women are different. And he's like, I know what you're thinking, pointing out how men and women are yeah. different, built, paid for my, my house. house. Yeah. And I'm just like. That that to me was like it's one I will it's one of the moments in comedy I think about consequences like that is so brilliant it's so interesting to have an opportunity with this special to reconcile your relationship to this conversation as well and so that was really exciting I mean it's also that interview was short and that it's another example of, I have a million Whitney Cummings questions that I couldn't get to but I that is the thing that is most surprising along with the fact that like the great comedians broadly define whatever great is have answers to the type of questions I want to know. They have they have a reason they do what they want to they do for the most part, and if they don't, if they are instinctual, that is still interesting as well. Yeah, you're like, you don't know why you do that, and I want to convey that because like you're doing it, and right. part of you is just like, this is what I do, and you're like, that's but that and the thing that's constantly surprising is that these people, and have the step that I've dreamed of when as a person who takes comedy very seriously, and started this podcast hoping comedians would allow me to help them take comedy seriously, that they have, they're able to do it because they, in their private life, or even maybe not on mic before, have taken it very seriously. You know, all day they're like, okay, I'm going to do the set. Let me think about this idea, even if they're not writing down jokes. Oh, let's talk about that thought. And like, those thoughts are interesting as a person who like, likes people's thoughts. We'll be right back with more, well, me. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. And we're back and it's still me. How much research do you do for the average episode for to like feel that deal? Because like some people, some like with someone like a John Mulaney, I feel like my guess is that you've kind of been steeped in his Mm -hmm. work more, you know, in your 
just recreationally yeah. more. And then with someone like Whitney Cummings, who had never had the same galvanizing appeal for you, I imagine you had to go back and and backfill. Yeah, I mean, I I treat everyone the same, even if I am exposed mm-hmm. to them, which is probably um, I've worked with people who are like, you don't have to put that much, don't have to do this much research. And I sort of like, it's too late now. I mean, like I used to say, I would consume every single interview a person has done, like I, if when possible, right? Yeah. It's like if they've done a reasonable amount of, like if they don't have their own podcast, if they have their own podcast, I'll do my best. But if they've only been interviewed let's say 40 times I could 2x speed just listen to them plow through that's zone. so much yeah and just will consume hours and hours of these people talking then read I will listen and read at the same time um, <laughs> just because I'm just kind of like looking for tidbits and I'm making connections or I'm just like putting in my brain and then when I sit down it's all there right I'm, I have these so all I just sort of like live a life where all I think about is these people it is I reference them constantly. If you find me in a time where I'm like, it's like, oh, this reminds me of this person. People are like, yeah, that's because that's all you're thinking. All about. I'm thinking about. Right. I'm like my, my therapist. Nobody else is watching a different Sebastian Maniscalco <laughs> special in each eyeball. Yeah, and my my therapist, God bless her. I'm like every week. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm about to interview this person, and this is sort of interesting because and like, and they're just on my mind. I contextualize it to myself. I contextualize it to everyone I know. I all I want to talk about these people. I mean the. This is sort of how I work. I've sort of like taken um, I, whatever my obsessive tendencies are. I've been able to make a career out of it. And I – and every single time I think maybe I don't need to do it. I'll listen to one more thing. I find one little small sentence and I'm like, that small sentence will frame everything. It's actually – it's really annoying. But it's so useful and it's um, – I'm trying to slow down a little bit and make sure I spend more time with the work. Um, because I do think a lot more interesting things happen when I'm like actually thinking about my relationship to what this work means. Mm-hmm. And, th- but it's, it's a ton. It's like way more than anyone would ever think is necessary. When you listen to the interviews, you're listening for things they've said that you feel like you would like to explore more. It's weird to be interviewed. Um, beyond the fact I'm being doing it right now, but I think generally it's weird to be interviewed. It's weird that everyone agrees to do it, but we as a society have agreed it's a form. Mm-hmm. And, as a result, and people sort of ask similar questions and to make your to not get exhausted and not feel too vulnerable all over again, you answer the same questions in the same way sure. over and over again. Or you like tell stories in more succinct and ways. And so as a result, you don't hear a person in a natural way. You're sort of hearing them answer questions. And I'm like, well, if I know the answer to this question already, I could ask them it again. Mm-hmm. Or I can already say you say this. Now, let's talk about this, which is not a thing they have an answer to because they haven't answered it. And then the dream and the best moments and the things that I, I I, don't remember that much in many interviews, but it's the things that I remember these moments, which is people making realizations and hearing someone think is an incredibly interesting thing, especially when it's a person like a comedian who's like has this depth of thought. To hear a person think is a really captivating moment. Have there been? Have you had favorites on the podcast? Yeah, I mean the most the most exciting one um, is the Pat and Oswald episode because we made the realization at the same time, which is um, we're talking about this joke that he does about his wife passing away, and um, in the joke, part of the context is there's a Halloween moment in it, and. Um, I asked him when did he feel comfortable that this was thing he can do, and he's like, "Oh, he didn't feel comfortable enough, I guess." 
and and then like he's like, I guess there's a part about Halloween and and then I realized I was at the show that he was about to talk about. And then like almost like we were finishing each other's sentences, like it was at the Beacon Theater because it was right after Halloween. And he this is really interesting pattern because I had consumed interviews about this special, which was a largely about his wife passing away before, and he was not really able to talk about it. He didn't really have perspective. He was still in it. The press tour was kind of like an extension. And this was really the first interview he did right after that or like three months after it. And then he's finally getting clarity. So you can feel this person like remove themselves from the fog and be like, oh, this is sort of what happened my last year. And I'm like, this is staggering. It's one that I will never forget. It's like the thing that I chase of like, this is one of the most interesting things that I've ever done. And it's a grand coincidence that I was there for that show. But that is like the, the the most extreme example of like that realization and feeling that because it's you know, um, I mean, and otherwise it's a thing that I'll it'll happen a good amount. Like it's and so I can only think of the more recent ones. But it is you know I'll put things together and they'll be like oh I guess that is sort of all connected. Cool. And I'm like, and when they then were like oh and then like I remember the earliest was Paul Shear. I presented him in a way and he's like I guess everything I was doing has been one thing. I was like. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That was that was what I was trying to tell you. <laughs> um, going back just a moment, why is it weird to be interviewed? Because, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's not weird. I think it's weird to have another person being like, I've been thinking about you all day, yeah. and now I'm going to tell you it. And um, I think it's not— Wait, that- wait, wait. So, okay, so you said—I don't mean to be combative, but you yeah. said it's weird to be interviewed. Uh, I think it's weirder to interview. Yeah, I think it's real— um, I think it's weird to interview in the way that I do. Okay, that's fair. I think I'm weird. I think okay. that's part of what I'm embracing of the show is like, when I started it, I had an idea and the concept is what motivated me. I was like, this is a good idea. We can talk about jokes. And then as the show evolved, it became about like my way of wanting to present thinking, um, which is like more complicated and and it's revealing and it's, you know, I majored in psychology and it's a little bit rooted in that idea of um, it's, you know, my dad is a therapist and also my therapist is pointing that like, this is what therapists <laughs> do, which is like you talk forever and they have senses of you and then they're hoping to lead you to make a realization. Mm-hmm. And that's like what I'm doing. And I think ultimately my goal is yeah, like, is to have it function similarly to therapy. Yeah. But not in the way that I think when people are like, oh, WTF is like therapy. It's more like, the part of therapy that is not just confession, but about you realizing stuff about mm-hmm. yourself. And comedians are good at it because comedians have like hypercharged pattern seeking brains. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they're like, oh, this is a thing that connects. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, have a certain sort of ability to do that. I think it's weird. I think it's weird that they agree to do it. I do think it's I do think it's sort of un you see when people starting in interviews that they are a little bit more uncomfortable talking about themselves in that way mm-hmm. and detaching themselves from the fact that they are themselves, right? You live a life and it's like someone, I remember I interviewed um, Ben Savage, who was the star of Boy Meets World. Mm-hmm. And I want to be, I, I asked him about what I think is the best episode of Boy Meets World, which is the Ski Lodge episode um, where he essentially like kisses someone instead of Topanga. And I think it's a really grown up, interesting episode of the show. And I asked him what it was like. And he goes like, you got to remember, that was just sort of like my job and I was a kid. And... He's right. Like, I do think, especially as a kid, you can't think about outside yourself, like, meaningfulness of your art. So I, I and I, that is sort of a realization of, like, it's weird 
to be a person and also think about what you're doing as if you're not the person doing it. I think. Right? I don't know. You've probably been interviewed more than I have. I've I've been interviewed a lot, but I feel like we're interviewed more than you think, right? Like not not necessarily for public consumption, but like job interviews, dates, um, Mm. meeting the the – in-laws right like meeting meeting your partner's parents or family or friends even and i feel like people are used to being interviewed yeah and i think even uh even people who are not used to being interviewed for public consumption are used to be like if you have a job that is obscure and someone says what do you do you have that filed down nugget answer so that you don't have to talk for five minutes to be like I maintain databases, but I don't code. And yeah. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. You know what? You're right. I think it my how weird I think it is to be interviewed, I think, says more about me than I think I realized. <laughs> Where I'm like, because you mentioned those things and I'm like, yeah, those are uncomfortable situations. Like the idea of something, you know what it is. I think it's, you know, not to reveal too much about this. No, that's, that's what we're here for. I know. It's like, I think it's weird to not have control how you're presenting yourself mm-hmm. and as a as a person I think of myself primarily as a writer mm-hmm. and even though this is an interview I think what I'm doing I guess is, is a form of writing and so it's a control-based form and I make sense of being able to like convey information by controlling how it's con- it's it's out and I so in my head it's weird to um not do that to let but, someone else dictate. but I do think um it is other people are not as obsessed with having control of how they're presented. But it is interesting that I do think of comedians as people who are, mm-hmm. and especially around their form, that they are willing to do it because th- – and that is the the grand thing. I mean, like, part of the reason the podcast started was when I interviewed Jerry Seinfeld, he said – I was asking about jokes. And he goes, this is my favorite thing to talk about, but it's really boring to everyone because we're mm-hmm. – everyone in front of us. And I was like, this is your f- – you are one of the most famous people on earth. This is your favorite thing and you won't tell anyone about it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I need to create a context where I'm like, as boring as you think this is, th- at minimum, this is what the show is. And um, and thankfully, comedians are like, okay. Um, and now you do it enough and you're like, well, if that person did it, then I guess I can do it. Um, but – and that that is maybe the only reason I'm able to is I'm like, oh, this is a show that I've got people to do it. The context for it is this. And then, like, let's all be comfortable not having giving me the control to talk about your work. Mm-hmm. Are there people are there dream guests yeah. that you feel like in the Eddie Murphy vein, living or dead? I mean, I guess dead. You understand why they're unattainable. And yeah. the, the listener would as well. Uh, but like that you felt have been unattainable. Yeah. I mean, the two. Uh, the dream guests I always say are Chris Rock, Tina Fey, and Mel Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris and Tina doesn't do a ton of press. Maybe she'll do one thing around when she has a thing coming out. Um, she doesn't have tons of things she writes coming out. Maybe around the Mean Girls movie, I can maybe do something with her and her husband um, to be like, oh, you know, it's about the, the work of it. Um, and... Chris really only does press around the specific thing he's promoting. He, I think, would be so good on the show. I think I think about that all. Like, he will be so good. He is so process-oriented as a comedian. And no one totally has talked to him about it because he doesn't do a ton of interviews. And he was doing interviews at a time where no one thought to ask him about that stuff. And now when he does press, it's often around movies, so it's not like the same thing. And then Mel, it's just sort of like he is 
of the sort of great comedians of a different generation that is still alive that I'd want to hear from that I have the most personal relationship to. I mean, there's like my dream guest partly is like, who can I get before they die? So I'm like, uh, I guess I'll do um, Mort Saul still alive. And I'm like, he's a dream guest. But like, um, yeah, I mean, like, so it's like those two. It's like Whoopi Goldberg never talks about comedy. And I'm just like. She graduated. Yeah. She sort of like and never had to do it again, but she's still like a comedic yeah. figure and chromatically influential. I always feel that way about comedy and rap is that the highest level of success in either one is to never have to do it again. Yeah. Like Ice-T is the most successful rapper of all time because he's been on SVU for so long. Yeah. And it's like gets to just be a rapper. I mean, like it's like Steve Martin. It'd be amazing, but I don't know if he'll like I literally don't know if he'll do it. It'd be like I'd have to get someone to do it that loved it so much. That they're like, as a favor, I'm going to tell Steve Martin mm-hmm. to do it. Because he famously like quit comedy. He then is like, I don't want to talk about comedy. He, he had that interview at the 90 Second Street. Why? That was sort of like a New York hubbub because he was only talking about art and people got annoyed. Yeah. And I so I don't want to talk to him about comedy if he doesn't want to, but he's Steve Martin. And he's so influential. And I don't know if people know. Because it's also, he has a comedy that does not age, as I think a lot of comedy doesn't age. Because you don't understand how revolutionary it was because we've now lived for decades in the revolution of what he changed. And I'm like, let's – that same thing with Whoopi, which is like, let's set the stage of like what was happening around you so then we can recontextualize it. What about um, comedians who have died? Are there any bits that you're like, I wish I could talk to this person about this <sighs> joke? Yeah. Um, I mean there's examples of just sort of like um, – you know, I did – at Vulture I did the 100 jokes that shape modern comedy mm-hmm. in the second one and it's like – a lot of those things are like, these are these seminal moments and like, what was it like to be in it? Um, I mean, it's Robin Harris who did Bebe's Kids. He changed so many things and no one knows because what he influenced already changed. Like people only saw like the deaf comedy jam people and they're like, oh, that was the, that to them was the breakthrough moment where it's like Robin Harris sort of gave a lot of people a playbook and um, he died. So Bebe's Kids was this bit he has that then became a movie and he died before the movie came out. But I think it's so interesting sort of what he did. Um, I mean, I have no idea if Mitch Hedberg would be able to talk about his jokes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have so many Mitch Hedberg jokes that I could, like, recall Yeah, that I'm like – and and always I'm I, for a person like Mitch, I'd be like, what joke do you want to talk about? Because it's possible that he's, like, um, the one that I have that I think of as the, my definitive Mitch Hedberg joke, which is I saw a wino eating a grape. I said, man, you have to wait. I'm like – he might be like, oh, you know, but maybe as another thing. My definitive Hedberg joke, not that you asked, because I'm interviewing you, sure. is um, I don't have a girlfriend. I just know a girl who get really mad if you hear me say that, yeah. which is like, that's like an essay collection <laughs> yeah. or that's like a, a that's like a heartbreaking short story. Yeah. Um, I'm trying but, to think of other. I mean, there's so many. Um, I mean, it's like I. I mean, I just would love to be in the same room as Gilda Radner mm-hmm. and be like whatever she wants to talk about. I think she brought an energy to comedy that didn't exist that I think is more resonant now mm-hmm. than it really was for decades in between. And also to get back to of like enjoying them, I was like, imagine just being in the room. But yeah. I, I like literally she is a person that you think about Gilda Radner, you almost start crying. And yeah. I'm like, I mean, so it's it's hard. I mean, like, but when I think about, it, as I said, like the goal of when we're going to do these episodes about Dead comedians is that we can have a current SNL comedian maybe talk about Gilda Radner mm-hmm. um, or what? or anyone like um, or like a person like Christian Shaw who like I think 
people are extension of things that did like people that there's like there's people in comedy that are essentially like ran the four minute mile three minute mile that were these this comedy didn't exist they did it and now people have that in them and it's like how can we talk about those moments what do you think about gilda radner's like comedic essence is more resonant now or is especially resonant now i mean i think there's just i mean it's maybe in the last 15 years because in the the joy it did not have tons of room in club comedy mm-hmm. um you know and and then when alt comedy came the first version of what we think of as alternative comedy especially the word alternative before we be shortened to alt it was still kind of serious it was like gen xy mm-hmm. and like those dudes are bad i'm going to tell this tell is like the janine garofalo janine, dana yeah mark mark marin um early Patton. um it was confessional in a way, and that was sort of old long stories, and that was still not necessarily fun. And then, sort of, the next generation happened, where there was real freedom in these rooms. You had people that maybe would have had a sketch background doing stand-up, and you know, and you have people like Christian Schall can exist. It's like part of what this is. It's going to be silly and it's fun, and like that joy is a thing that comedy can be. Like comedy, there's like oh, comedy is surprise, or comedy is it's like well, comedy can be just an energy, and I think. Gilda had an energy that, like, it, it, you know, it's a childlike innocence and in a real way that I think every once in a while you're like, comedy needs to remember that that's part of it, which is like, we're grownups doing this silly thing. And like, that's because we're all these sort of grown, grown people that were once children and we want to tap back into that. Mm-hmm. And that is a thing that I think over the last maybe 20 years, there's been more room for. And I think, mm-hmm was really useful for me um, watching comedy was, you know, I grew up and I I went to the comedy cell a lot when I was like a late teen. And it was like, a, it wasn't that type of thing. And I got tired of it. And I think I was able to get back into comedy because I saw these sort of sillier people that mm-hmm. was doing that. Who, um, who were the people that got you back into it? Uh, Kristen and... Yeah, so um, the, it was, I didn't go for a while and a friend brought me to see comedy death ray before sure. trying to comedy bang me mm-hmm. and the first week it was um hannibal burris mm-hmm. and this was before he was anything it was of 2008 course. 2009 and i was like i've never seen anything like this i remember the joke he's he was he went to a thai restaurant they gave him a whole tilapia and they're essentially like there's he's like there's bones in this it's like i'm not a, i'm this i'm not heathcliff this is not a trash it's like this is not a trash cut and i'm not heathcliff or whatever and it's not like an amazing joke it's sort of like this guy's speaking the language i have and then the next week was Kyle Kinane, and I was like, this is amazing. He did 10 minutes just about this pizza menu you saw. And then once, and then I, I can't remember how, because Kristen was on Flight of the Concords already, and that was really breakthrough for me. But when I saw her stand up, and I, I tell her, she's my favorite comedian, um, as a person who likes silliness and likes fun, who likes deconstruction of form, she is the, she's really doing it at, at a level um, and she's really interesting and thoughtful about it. I wish she just was doing tons more, but she's a busy lady. She can do whatever she wants. So what are the what are some trends in comedy that you find are really like exciting or interesting? I mean, the thing that is really fascinating, and my colleague Alex Jung wrote the piece about the new, the new I new queen. love that. I think about that piece all the time. Sorry, it, I it's one of the great pieces of comedy writing. And I, I remember seeing this trend happening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Alex can think, put a finger on what is different about it, and. To explain the the piece, which essentially the, the it's not just like there are gay comedians now. It's that especially in Brooklyn, it is a complete queering of 
the the comedy space, especially in, in venues like Union Hall and the Bell House and Littlefields, but also you're seeing Joe's Pub, which was more a sort of what we think of um, as a cabaret place, seeing sort of regular comedy, and that's and Caveat's another place that's sort of walking this line, and it, it it's it's going to revolutionize comedy. It's a thing that. I wrote this big piece about the comedy boom, and I had to write an ending about what's next. And I couldn't put a finger on it. I'm so mad. And then it's this, which is when we make comedy audiences know to that they're part of it and that they should make the space safe in terms of like for creativity and for different types of people, then you're getting people that did not necessarily feel comfortable in this space, which is not just, again, not just like some gay comedians, but people who are interested in sort of queering the space – they're like, maybe this is a thing for me. And it's a thing that never existed before. I mean, like, I can name the name that's like what Catherine Cohen is doing feels revolutionary. It feels like obviously there's sort of influences, but like I was literally telling, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to see what happens when especially L.A. club comedians learn that this is happening. I'm like, you guys don't know that there's about to be a bunch of people and they're going to be singing and you're going to have to reconcile what do you think comedy is with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Catherine Cohen, Matt Rogers, Bone Yang is probably now mm-hmm. the most public example of what you're seeing of it. Larry He's, Owens. Larry Owens. And they're changing comedy. Like Bowen already in one season has expanded the vocabulary of what can exist on SNL. Mm-hmm. And that is remarkable. To live through that is so exciting to me. Like I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's to live in Brooklyn, especially. It's like these people are all around. There's new people adding to it. Once people catch up, comedy won't be the same. And that is that is so exciting. That is, um, it's the most exciting thing in at least a decade. That that piece that Alex read, I think about all the time. It's like, it's. I'm so glad that that exists. As like, look at this. This is its own genre. It's not. It's not like a adaptation. It's yeah. like a very special, specific yeah. thing. We've talked a lot about comedy changing. How have you yourself changed since the time you've been thinking about comedy, analyzing, writing about, interviewing comedians as, as a professional? Yeah, I mean, I think I have divorced myself from the idea of my taste being what judges what I find interesting mm-hmm. um, completely. I mean, the the good news is that, you know, there's these people like, oh, you can't analyze jokes. It ruins the comedy. I was like, well, I've done it literally probably more than anyone alive, mm-hmm. and I still laugh at comedy shows. Mm-hmm. I still laugh at specials. I still laugh at SNL clips. You know, like, and if that's the case, I know certain moves people are doing, and I'm not, like, completely cynical. And I have become really sort of interested in the idea of of comedy, of different types of people and different sort of value systems in which we judge different comedians by. And I, you know, and that's sort of what I became much more... I would say mission oriented in terms of what we're trying to do, which mm-hmm. is I, my goal is to make m- better fans who to who respond to more interesting comedy well, who understand what people are doing, so they can appreciate it the way we do movies mm-hmm. and music. It's 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 um, creating comedy literacy, mm-hmm. like because I do think there's a problem where we don't know how to talk about it, and it's like where. Often with comedy, we just talk about what's good and bad based on what they say, not how they say it. Mm-hmm. And and that has changed as I've had success over it and I've realized what about it to me is sort of interesting. Cool. And that is sort of – I've just sort of like what – I've had to try to create – to keep me motivated. I was like what are the goals of this? And then I think that is sort of the biggest change. I became like mission-oriented. Divorced now. from your own taste is so interesting because on your um, – the – 
the best special of the year that where you talked with Catherine Van Arendunk. Is that how you say her yeah. last name? She brought up like her point yes. of view as a critic is she wants to create a dependable taste, yes. which is uh, I like those two philosophies. Yeah, I've never thought. And it's when I was like, I'm not a critic. Right. I, you know, right, I, right, I'm right. an interviewer yeah. and like. Totally. I consider myself as an essayist because it's like, I don't think I'm right. It's a matter of like, what's I'm, let's have a conversation about what this is. Mm-hmm. I have personal taste. And I'm happy to tell people personally about yeah. it, but it's less interesting to me. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me about is judging people, understanding the people on the terms that they're mm-hmm. trying to do. So, Jesse, you end your podcast every week with a, a segment called The Laughing Round. <laughs> Which is almost a pun on lightning round. Mm-hmm. And you do it every week. And every week you kind of laugh as you um, prostrate yourself in front of a professional comedian with this nearly a joke. Mm-hmm. Why do you do that? Yeah. So when I had the idea of that um, clumsy portmanteau or whatever, mm-hmm. which was really early on, I had it. I, I when I started the show, I did not. I essentially how the show started was. A person in the business side was like, what's in a thing that you would need a bunch of money up front to justify doing? It's like, I guess a podcast. And that was it. And that was the pitch that went out. And by the grace of God and by that, I mean Judd Apatow and then Pete Holmes, they are promoting crashing. And Judd has a lot of control over his ad spent. He's like that. I, maybe he doesn't even know that he did that. So I didn't have an idea for a show. And then I was sort of seeing the type of things I did, which were like I was writing about jokes. And then I was talking to a producer and I was like well, things should have a fun thing at the end. And then I was like, well, like a lightning round. And I was like, oh, we can call it a laughing round, um, which is because it's a comedy, you know. And I was like, that to me is me. Like, I did feel the show was not fully encompassing me until I thought that. Because though I don't, like, demand everyone know that I'm, like, a stupid person as well as a smart (laughs) person, I just think of myself that way. And, like, I also was like, you know, like, what if people only listen to podcasts and they follow me on Twitter and like, this guy's stupid constantly. He mm-hmm. says nothing smart. <laughs> um, and that to me, I was like, once I thought that, I was like, well, now this is a show. I know what the show is. It is going to include the sort of as deep of a thinker as I can, which is like, I think about like when I interviewed the Lucas Brothers, like this is the deepest conversation I've ever had in my oh, entire yeah. life. And then I say a bad pun. And then why I do it every episode is because... People react differently, and it's very funny mm-hmm. because I don't know what they're going to say. Yeah, and some people very recently, some people started liking it, which is like, <laughs> oh, um, I interviewed David Wayne and he liked it. I was like, well, you're the guy that would like it, yeah, but it's yeah, not- yeah, because it's like the joke is that this joke is like aggressively not quite right. Yeah, yeah, and I've just proven I'm like this deep thinker yeah, about yeah, the yeah. state of comedy or whatever, and I'm like, he, it's and. You know, the listener, the guest does not know that not only do it every week, but I say the sort of way I explain it the exact same week mm-hmm. every week, which to me, it's just so I mean, it's like it again, it's, it is a bit like the Christian Shaw thing of like if you repeat things over and over again, especially if it's so stupid, there's there's something about like, what is this guy? What who is this guy that would be like, this is what funny is. And it's so funny to me. I know people hate the sound. That I know, and then I change the sound, and I, the sound to me is funny because I like the idea that the most serious question that I ever ask a person's at the end, and then I interrupt it to be like, here's this noise, and then I know people don't like the laughing around as much because they sort of like the more serious stuff, but like that's me, and I'm like, if I'm going to create this thing and put so much time into it, I want it to reflect sort of all of me, 
And they're like, my goal when I interview people is not to necessarily make it about me. That small part is like, that's me. That's what I find yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. I love that answer. Yeah. I truly was thinking about this question all day. Yeah. I was like, I know Jesse will have an answer to it. I wonder what that answer is. It's my favorite. It's not my favorite part of the show, but by the time I get to it also, I'm like, there's a relief of like, yeah. I did all the hard parts now it's- and there's going to be the, the other parts that'll be sort of easy and, it's in, and, and, and people are allowed to pass. I'm like, do you have an answer mm-hmm. to this? No. And I'm just like, this is going to be, I don't, this person doesn't know it's going to come. Mm-hmm. The funniest was when I interviewed Natasha Leggero. And if you know Natasha Leggero, she's um, she's a woman of great taste. And she, I interviewed her husband, Moshe, first. And she's like, I right, listened to the episode with Moshe. And I knew the laughing round was going to come. And I knew she would hate it because she's like, I believe in the things I believe in. And, um, and I was like, and I did the thing. And she's like, oh, I didn't listen to this part. And I knew what she was saying is like, I might not have done the podcast if I knew there's going to be a dumb that's thing at the so end. That's <laughs> so funny. And to me, I was like, that's beautiful. That's my favorite reaction. When that's a person great. hates it, I like to be like, what are they thinking? This guy who literally has been so serious right. out of nowhere. And I, it's not like I, I deadpan it. You know, but, no, you, but it's like if at the end you were like, can we take a picture? And you threw up like the shocker <laughs> yeah, with yeah. both hands. And they're like, I thought this was a different guy. <laughs> Okay, I have a couple of quick questions yeah. for you. Um, the last work of comedy that made you laugh out loud? Oh, God. Um, I mean, the last thing that made me truly, like, die was I, I thought I watched every episode of Detroiters. Mm-hmm. I thought I did. Yeah. And then I was having a bad week, and I was like, I'm going to rewatch the second season. Because I definitely rewatched the first season. Of yeah. And then I saw this episode, and I was like, I haven't seen this before. And, and it, and so there's a joke, um, there's three, it's an incredible episode, but there's three storylines. It's a weird episode where it's not advertising based. And the, there's the Tim Robinson storyline is, um, a colleague of his wife dies and, um, and he then goes to the widower and, or the widow, the widow, or I can't remember which one's it. And he's like, well, if you need anything, I'm happy to come over. And he's like, we won't come over on Saturday. And so he's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so he comes over and this guy is so glum and so weird as the show is. And he's like having him do chores. And <laughs> and he goes like, and the 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 person with the deceased wife was like, um, can you make sandwiches? Can you make me sandwiches? And sandwiches like whatever. It looks like Gloria always make it sandwiches. And he's like, now she sandwiches for worms. <laughs> and I paused. I'm like crying, laughing in a way that I shouldn't at this point of comedy. So what I was just yeah. like, that is so funny to me. I sort of needed this laugh. And I could, um, it was like a gift to have this new episode. I, I mean, immediately. I don't know that I've seen that. And I thought it, maybe it's like. Maybe it didn't air or something. I don't know because I've I think I've also seen all of the the, da- the B plot is Sam dates a person who who he talks bl- like quote unquote black around this person he's dating. It's sort of the B plot. Oh, uh, maybe I have seen it, but I just it was so that funny. was the last thing. I Detroit was like, Um Who? What is the com- the comedian or the work of comedy that you revisit the most frequently? Um. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, you know what the real answer is? Yeah. Uh, no, I realize it. It's um the. Bo, the ending of Bo Burnham's special, mm-hmm. and I don't know why. Right? It's not even like, I. It's not even like a big laugh-inducing moment. It's like the song's good and it conveys something. And I do think it really is. 
a pinnacle of an art form. And I just, for some reason, I'm in a mood. I just want to see it. And I want to consume it. And I think it is like a bit of a talisman, whatever the word talisman means, Mm -hmm. of not even my, like, of reminding myself of sort of what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. But also I think maybe because it's just like, because it's music, you can listen to music over and over again. Um, Yeah, I... It's like that, and sort of every once in a while, pop star the mu- the soundtrack of pop star. It's oh, the same reason. Pop star is so music. yeah, the music is so catchy. What joke? This is your question. What joke? If you could have as a joke you have written, would you would you want to steal and deploy as as your own witticism? Oh, it, you know, it's it's hard to say witticism. I didn't. It, didn't it doesn't make, have to be a witticism. I was did thinking about like you know I have done writing, and it was like there are thirty rock jokes that I'm just sort of wish I had and. Um, but now it sort of is different. It means something different, so I don't know if it works. But That's I can't. Okay. Let me make sure if I have no. Well, I'll do the short answer, and then I will end with this other one because it's funnier. Which is, I always imagined if I did stand up, there I had a sort of idea of, um, you know, it's like it was. It, there's a good thing about being a late bloomer is you don't have all these memories of sexual experiences with teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I why I say this because then Pete Holmes once riffed it. Like, he oh, just sort of so said funny. it one time live. He's like, you know, it's like, it's weird when you imagine having, like, you're kissing this 14-year-old that you have in your head. That is a, you have that memory. And yeah. And I was like, well, I wish he didn't say that because then I could just have it as a yeah. thing that point. Um, yeah, that's very, like, in the Pete Holmes world because he also has that joke about, like, I'm lucky that the thing that I'm into sexually isn't, yes. like, criminal. Yeah. And then the joke that I wish sort of I wrote, I guess, is, and now as you'll see why, which was in 30 Rock. Um, Kenneth is tr- has this idea for a show, and he goes, "I told it to Moonves at oh Moonves, yeah, I told it to Moonves at 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 CBS and over at CBS, and so it's it, and then he, then they cut do a cutaway yep. to a man with moons on his vest. It's he, so funny. That's one of the hardest. I mean, I, the resonance of less Moonves is different and now, now. But then the, that's already funny enough. It's so funny. And then Moonves Moonves the character goes, "Give me your fingernails." Which is so funny, and then every, and then, the way Kenneth Jim, uh, Jack McBrayer goes, no, <laughs> is like every joke I would ever write, it, any script I ever do, would be like, I want that. The first joke is great. The second joke is an escalation, and then sort of like the third joke is both. It affirms the reality. Is so short and sort of performs away. I was like, that is like my, f- it's the sitcom so joke funny. that I love so much. It's so good. Um, well, Jesse, thank you for appearing oh, on your you, podcast. Dude. Thank you. Uh, oh, my pleasure. Um, Jesse, where can people find you? <laughs> this podcast coming back February 25th. February 25th. Um, and you'll uh, you'll see it. But I, I've been Josh Gondelman, but nobody gives uh, a shit. I've been, yeah, I've been Josh Gondelman. <laughs> Good night. Good night. That's it for another episode. Good One returns on February 25th, and we're going weekly. You can buy or stream Josh's albums wherever you get music. Buy his book, Nice Try, wherever you get books. Follow Josh on social, at Josh Gondelman. And come see a live recording of Good One on April 2nd at Union Hall in Brooklyn. Tickets are on sale now. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Art Chung. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back soon with all new episodes. Have a good one. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 